0: Hello everyone and welcome to CRAM Surge, clinical research appraisal and methodology for surgical trainees, where we pick a paper fresh from the press on a hot general surgical topic. We review it for you, we present it for you, we critique its methodology for you and provide top of the field expert opinions and teaching on research appraisal and methodology. My name is Gio Perrin and together with Professor Sababella Subramanian, Adam Haig, Ben Wood and Josh Lau, we bring you crown search from the wonderful region of the yorkshire and the humber
1: right we're going to talk about randomized control trials again and um, let me close this Can you hear me yes right so we looked at randomized control trials in the last tutorial and we ran through uh, the introduction of randomized control trials we talked about why we need randomized controlled trials. We talked about the fact that they form the basis for level one evidence. We talked about clinical equipoise. And we started talking about methods of randomization. And I described simple randomization. So before we go any further, let's revisit the example from the last tutorial. So we talked about randomizing patients with low risk differentiated thyroid cancer into having either a total thyroidectomy or a hemi-thyroidectomy. And I briefly mentioned that, this, that there is a lot of controversy in this area, and uh, we still do not know uh, what the ideal treatment is for this group of patients. We mentioned that there are a number of factors that would affect outcomes in low uh, thyroid cancer. And a couple of factors uh, we talked about were gender, Uh, male patients being um, at a slightly higher risk of recurrence, and tumor size. T1 tumors, i.e. tumors of size less than 2 centimeters, um, obviously being associated with a better prognosis compared to T2 tumors. And both T1 and T2 tumors fall in the low-risk category. So that's the scenario to keep in the back of uh, your minds while we discuss uh, the principles of um, randomization and blinding in a bit more detail right so the things to remember when it comes to randomization is the is the objective and as I discussed before the key objective of a randomized controlled trial is to reduce uh, reduce selection bias which in turn will ensure that the participants in the two arms of the trial are comparable now there are two main components to randomization the first is the generation of a random sequence at the start of the trial. And the second is to maintain allocation concealment, which simply means that the investigator enrolling patients into the trial is not aware of the random sequence. Or in other words, the investigator does not know what comes next. And therefore, um, he or she is less likely to be biased towards enrolling patients into the trial. Okay, so with this in mind, we also briefly talked about simple randomization And I said that uh, in simple randomization for a trial where you're randomizing patients to one of two treatment groups, i.e. in this scenario, hemithyroidectomy versus total thyroidectomy, you generate a random sequence, usually by means of a um, computer-generated sequence or software, like the one that we've heard um, in the paper presented, and you allocate patients to either a hemithyroidectomy or a total thyroidectomy um, in the example that we've discussed. Now, the problem with simple dynamization um, is this. As you see in the figure, the number of patients in the hemi arm and the total arm are unequal. We have, as a consequence of simple dynamization, got 17 patients in the total arm and 13 in the hemi arm. And also, as you can see in the figure, there are a lot more females in the total arm and a lot more T1 tumors in the total arm so this is uh, these are known problems of simple randomization and uh, you really don't want to do a trial where right at the outset you've got a problem in randomization in that you have unequal numbers and the prognostic factors are not well distributed right so what do we do uh, about the problem of unequal number and numbers in two groups i mean a common question i've heard uh, a few times is why can't we enforce equal numbers in the random sequence generated? (coughs) Sorry. We can, but once you start enforcing equal numbers, if you ask the computer to give you 15 totals and 15 HEMIs, then the sequence becomes predictable. And once a sequence is predictable, you can't ensure allocation concealment i.e. you can't make sure that the investigator who enrols patients doesn't know what comes next. And that will lead to selection bias. So just to take this a bit further and explain this in a bit more detail. So if you say to the computer you want 15 HEMIs and 15 totals in random sequence, then by the time you get to the end of the trial, it will be very easy for the investigator to predict uh, what, what will come next. So in this example, the last five patients have been allocated to total thyroidectomy. And by the time you come to the end of the trial, you've done 25 patients. You know that it's only total thyroidectomy left in the sequence. And then you might be predisposed to or if you're biased towards one procedure or the other, you may or may not enroll patients that you think may not benefit from a total thyroidectomy. So that's the problem with enforcing equal numbers. In the random sequence that you generate in simple randomization. <coughs> okay, so the solution for this problem of unequal numbers is what we call block or permuted randomization. So, what that means is that you randomize in blocks with equal numbers in the different arms of the study, in the two arms, the hemi and the total arm. And the sizes of the blocks are usually a multiple of the number of treatment arms. So if you've got two treatment arms, i.e. hemi in mean a total, then the block sizes could be two, four, six, or eight. So let's um, examine this a bit further. So how does this help? Right, so you've got a population of patients that you want to randomize, and um, you're not very happy about simple randomization because you want equal numbers in the two arms. So what you do is you break up the random sequence in blocks. Let's say you want to do, uh, use a block size of four. So the random sequence generated would be in blocks of four, and within the block, you will have equal numbers of the treatment arms, as you can see in the example here. And If you use this process, you will find that um, you will have equal or nearly equal numbers in the total arm and the hemi arm. And, therefore, and, and by this process, you sorted out the problem of unequal numbers seen with simple randomization. Okay, so I hope that that explains block randomization. You still have the problem with block randomization of having an unequal distribution of the confounding variables you know about. So again, females are represented more often in the total group compared to the hemi, and you've got a lot of smaller tumors in the total group compared to the hemi. So. And um, you've got to keep in mind that you can still have selection bias with block randomization, especially if the block sizes are very small. And it is known. So uh, if, you, if you're going to do block sizes, of if you're going to use fixed block sizes of four or six, and the investigator knows that, then within the block, he or she can figure out what will come next in the sequence. So one solution is to use different block sizes in random. So you could go from 2 to 4 to 6 to 8 in random. You could still end up with unequal numbers, but uh, the inequality in numbers is usually not large if you do block randomization. It could be slightly large if you have extremely large blocks, especially if the trial is stopped midway through the last block. And if you still am, am interested in block randomization and want to learn a bit more, then I've got a couple of references at the bottom that you can uh, look up. So let's then move on to what we call stratified randomization. So just to recap, we've seen that block randomization may be used to equalize numbers across treatment arms, but it does not address the unequal distribution of confounders. Now, the confounders that we're discussing here in this example gender and tumor size. These are what we call known confounders because both of these confounders we know about will influence the outcomes of uh, patients with thyroid cancer. So if you randomize patients with thyroid cancer into a total and a hemi arm uh, and you get an equal distribution of gender and size, then that's going to be a big problem. Do you attribute the Uh, the differences you see in the outcomes to the fact that they've had a total thyroidectomy or a hemithyroidectomy? Or would you attribute it simply to the fact that there were more um, female patients in one arm and more um, low-risk cancers or T1 tumors in one arm? So that's a problem. So what do we do? So we can do a stratified randomization, which means that to try and distribute the confounders equally, you do the randomization process separately by the confounder. I'll I'll show an example in a minute. Now in theory this can be done for any number of confounders. You can do it for um, age, uh, tumor size, gender and so on but let's just focus on one confounding variable um, and in this case gender. (coughs) So how do we do do, uh, stratified randomization by gender? So we know that thyroid cancer is more common in women. And let's just assume that in the general population of patients with thyroid cancer, the male to female ratio is 1 to 2. And what you essentially want is you want 1 to 2 ratio of men and women, both in the total group and in the hemi group. So what you do is you consider the female population first, then generate a random uh, random sequence in blocks. So do the block randomization, if you like and allocate women, females, to either the total or the hemi-arm. You then generate another random sequence for men, again in blocks, and um, allocate men, or the male gender, to the total of the hemi-arms. And this way you ensure that both arms of the trial have an equal distribution of uh, the female and the male genders. Right, so that... So much for stratified randomization. So essentially we um, learned that in stratified randomization, you do the randomization uh, process separately for each of the confounding variables. But the problem is that for many outcomes in uh, surgical research and in clinical research in general, uh, the outcomes can be extremely multifactorial in that it's not just gender and that uh, can influence outcomes, but a whole range of factors. Like um, you see on the screen, you've got gender, tumor size, age, graph mutation status, family history, coexisting nodules, and so on and so forth. These are just things that I uh, came up with, thought about in a few minutes. So if you have so many different confounders, you're going to have a problem. How many times can you repeat the randomization process um, for each of these confounding variables? So That becomes impractical, not feasible. So that's the problem. What if there are multiple confounders? Then the stratified process will not be effective or um, feasible. So you use a special technique called minimization, or otherwise called covariate adaptive randomization. Quite a complex sort of phrase. But essentially what this means is you're trying to minimize the imbalance in the confounding variables. And you do this by adapting the distribution of the covariates. When we say covariates, we mean confounders. So what you really do is you start off random allocation and then subsequently allocation of participants is based on the characteristics of participants already in the trial. This is slightly problematic because, in my opinion, this is not truly randomization. But the big advantage of minimization is that it enables you to ensure that all of the confounders that you know about are fairly equally distributed in the two groups. This is quite a uh, complex sort of uh, uh, process to undertake and, and therefore this is something we really ought to leave to the specialists, the people who really know how um, uh, to do this, pro- this procedure correctly. Again, there's a reference at the bottom of the screen for you to look up if you're interested in more detail. Right, cluster randomization. I mentioned this briefly in my last tutorial Essentially, this is randomization in clusters, by which we mean that the unit of randomization is not an individual patient, but a group. So you could say, for example, that you're randomizing all the hospitals in England um, to either the treatment group or the standard group. And, and if it's a total versus hemathyroidectomy as in thyroid cancer, you randomize the hospital and say that for all low risk cancers, you will need to perform a total and another hospital may, be, uh, may have to perform a hemithyridectomy for all of their low-risk cancer patients. It doesn't really work very well for surgical research in general, there are exceptions, and this kind of randomization process is usually used for complex interventions. Again, and there's a reference at the bottom of the screen for if you wanted more information on this. Right, I think we'll now move on to blinding in randomized controlled trials. We talked about uh, blinding uh, briefly in the context of the paper that is presented uh, today. So essentially, blinding in randomized trials is where the stakeholders of the trial are unaware of the treatment assignment until the end of the study. And stakeholders in clinical trials essentially are patients, assessors, i.e. people who um, assess the outcomes, people who provide treatment, analysts and report writers. So typically, if you blind patients, that's called a single blind trial. If you blind assessor, that becomes double blind. If you blind treatment providers, that will be a triple blind trial, and you don't really see uh, more levels of blinding than a triple blind trial. Occasionally, people have um, encouraged and talked about blinding analysts. When you send the spreadsheets to your statistician, you tell them, You give them data on treatment A, data on treatment B. You don't tell them what treatment A or B is, so they're completely in the dark, and they will do all the analysis they need to do and um, uh, compare treatment A and treatment B without really knowing which one is which. And another level of blinding, just just sort of interest, that's been proposed is where you blind the people that write the report. And the people will write a report in the discussion and say, and that talk all about A and B without really knowing what is A and what is B. They'll make a conclusion that A is probably better than B, and then the whole the report goes off to maybe the editor of the journal that's going to publish it, and then the editor will be able to unmask A and B. And that's just talked about. It's um, you know it's probably not necessary, but um, a lot of uh, medical um, clinical trials involving medicines um, may be amenable to that especially when uh, these are commercially uh, funded and sponsored. And you really want to ensure that uh, no kind of bias or pressure creeps in, especially on the authors writing the report. Right. I just want to emphasize uh, this uh, uh, statement. And a lot of people confuse these two terms, blinding and allocation concealment. They're very different. They're both very important in RCTs. But essentially, allocation concealment is where you conceal the, uh, the sequence from the investigators enrolling patients. Blinding is where patients, assistants, and treatment providers are unaware of treatment assignment. So they're, very, um, they're quite different conceptually. <coughs> right, how does blinding help? Essentially, it reduces bias in how outcomes are assessed. And these include things like performance bias, and ascertainment or detection bias now does it really help does it really matter again something that a lot of people ask because you go to a lot of trouble trying to blind your patients and your treatment providers your surgeons and so on if possible Uh, and uh, um, uh, there's also a lot of cost involved but there are uh, there is a lot of work that has gone on that has um, looked at whether trials that are done without blinding show the same effects or the same effect sizes as trials with blinding and uh, these um, studies have shown that unblinded trials show greater treatment effect than blinded trials or tend to exaggerate the effect sizes so on that basis we've got to conclude that blinding does really help. (coughs) Is it feasible? Not for many surgical trials, it isn't. You can't blind a patient in a trial comparing medical and surgical treatment, obviously. And you'll also struggle to blind a patient comparing a hemithyroidectomy to a total thyroidectomy. And sometimes you may not be able to blind um, the treatment providers, but you can uh, certainly try to uh, blind the assessors. So not all levels of blinding may be possible in many surgical trials. However, it's something that we always need to keep in mind Some people go with the assumption that surgical trials can never be blinded. They're obviously not correct. And it's important to explore feasibility of blinding in whatever trial you come across. And if you manage to do blinding, it's always useful to see if at all you can measure the success of blinding. Right. So what happens if blinding is not possible? What can be done? Now, one of the things that can be done that's very effective is to go back to your outcomes and to see whether the outcomes are as objective as possible. I mean, an outcome such as pain or quality of life is clearly not an objective outcome, but an outcome such as death or a tumour marker such as thyroglobulin in thyroid cancer might be a very objective outcome. And if you can't um, ensure blinding, do um, see if all your confounders can be adjusted as much as possible by using one of the more appropriate types of randomization, such as stratified randomization and perhaps minimization. Also, see if you can ensure in a surgical trial that the care providers are balanced across groups. You want to try and avoid um, having surgeons operate on patients just in one hour of the trial. And if you do have a slightly subjective outcome, and you see if you can validate the assessment that's been made by the assessors. So, for example, if you have radiologists reporting CT scans, looking for lung metastasis as a marker for recurrence, and if you're not able to blind the radiologist to whether the patient's had a hemorrhoid or total thyroidectomy because they can see whether a remnant thyroid lobe is there in the neck or not, then you could potentially ask two different radiologists to Look at the whole set of CT scans, looking for recurrent disease. And finally, uh, acknowledge that you haven't been able to blind when you're writing the report, and and, um, and submit that as a limitation of your trial, um, with proposals of what what other outcomes could have been used. So, in a trial comparing hemi versus total thyroidectomy for loris cancer, is blinding possible? Anyone would like to uh, uh, take up? Uh, this question and try and uh, think aloud as to um, whether blinding is possible, what levels of blinding may be possible for what outcomes. Gio, you want to have a go? Yeah,
0: yeah sure. sure. Mm-hmm. I was just waiting for someone else to volunteer. Yeah, I was hoping um, well. Uh, right. So, um, well, you cannot blind the surgeon uh, that's performing the procedure. Yeah. Uh, but you can blind the patient. Um, because yeah. the scar would be the same. Yeah. Um, and you can blind the assessor of the outcome if you wanted to, because they don't necessarily need to, mm, to be involved in the procedure itself. That's um,
1: what the outcome is. So if the outcome yeah, is from yeah. thyroid cancer, then you really don't need assessor blinding. True. But if the al- outcome is, say, recurrence, recurrence, um, uh, neck recurrence then it'll be fairly it'll be almost impossible to blind because if they do a scan of the neck the radiologist they'll know if the thyroid is there or not yeah so
0: those are things to think about yeah any any other thoughts um you could blind stakeholders i mean it's not going to make a massive difference but you can Uh,
1: like Uh, analysts you mean yes yeah
0: yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. Patient blinding again. Um, um, it is possible. At the end of the day, uh, the scar length may not be too different comparing um, between a hemi and a total thyroidectomy. However, hemi thyroidectomy patients may not will not need thyroxin treatment postoperatively, while total thyroidectomy patients will need it. Then you got to think about whether you're going to blind the thyroxine tablets. Yeah, that'll be interesting. Yeah, I didn't think about that. Yeah. So, so those, it's just to think about the, um, the potential in trying to reduce bias from all sources while you're designing the trial. And that's why the, uh, these kinds of national multicenter trials um, are um, designed by a big team. And they spend a lot of time thinking about the various aspects of uh, randomization, blinding and so on and so forth. OK, that's good. Right. Right. Um, I don't know if um, perhaps Victor, if you don't mind, Victor, uh, do you want to try and uh, match the following for me? On the left-hand side, you've got some phrases and terms. On the right-hand side, you've got their meanings and explanations. Do you want to have a crack at this? Yeah. Uh... So let, let's start with the allocation concealment. I'm sorry for putting you on the spot, but uh, don't worry about making mistakes. We're all here to learn.
0: And I can always cut your answer when we release the podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay. Um, Allocation concealment is...
1: So you're concealing something, and who are you concealing it from? Okay, I'll put you out of your misery. So you're concealing the investigator recruiting patients into the trial, yeah, from the random sequence because you don't want the investigator recruiting patients to know what comes next because if they know what comes next and they think a particular patient will not be suitable, so consciously or subconsciously they will avoid recruiting that patient. They'll look for exclusions.
0: Yeah? Yeah. Okay. So it's mass-recruited it to the random random sequence, then? Correct. Correct.
1: Blinding. Let's go to blinding. A- anyone wants to pitch in, pitch in. I think we're running out of time as well.
0: Uh, blinding stakeholders being unaware of treatment assignment, I would yeah, say.
1: very good. Minimization.
0: Uh, we said... It's a special type of randomization meant to balance multiple confounders, I believe.
1: Very good. Uh, use of blocks in the RCTs, block randomization.
0: This helps to ensure an equal and expected numbers in uh, these different treatment arms.
1: Yeah, great. And cluster randomization. We discussed at the end, it's used in the evaluation of complex interventions.
0: Yeah, it's the only one left as well.
1: Yeah. yeah, brilliant. Right. So just to summarize what we've um, discussed, you've got to keep in mind that there are two important parts to randomization. One is the generation of sequence has to be done before the trial starts. And the other is that we need to try and ensure allocation concealment. These are really, really important. We talked about different randomization methods. I think we'll all do well just to remember simple randomization, block randomization, and stratified randomization. Any randomization method needs to reduce selection bias. Block randomization will help achieve similar numbers in both arms. Stratified randomization will help distribute uh, uh, one or two confounders um, equally in both arms. More complicated uh, types, we don't really need to know about, um, and we can always get help from uh, um, people much more qualified than us to help us with it. We talked about blinding. We said blinding may not be possible in surgical trials, but uh, we should uh, seriously consider it. If one level is not possible, we should look at other levels and we should think about how best we can um, blind at least at one level patients getting enrolled in surgical trials. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you, everyone, for tuning in and listening. Until next time, keep running your life with our surgical podcast.